0: All right, welcome to another episode of Jane Eyre Public Access Read Along with your friends, Womance. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And I read the odd chapters. And so this week I will be reading chapter nine. Isabel, can you give us a quick recap of what happened in chapter eight before we kick things off? I sure can. In chapter eight, we
1: had a moment of very comforting resistance wherein Helen and Jane were invited to the inner sanctum of their favorite teachers, like her sitting room, where they got to eat tea cake with Miss Temple and have Miss Temple tell them what good girls they actually are and how smart they are. And it's this moment where we see Miss Temple really try to shield them as much as possible from the rudeness and unfair barbarity of Lowood School. And we have this real moment of tenderness as a way of buttressing the inner resistance of jane
0: yeah all right so let's pick up there with chapter nine but the privations or rather the hardships of low lessened spring drew on she was indeed already come the frost of winters had ceased, its snows were melted, its cutting winds ameliorated. My wretched feet, flayed and swelled to lameness by the sharp air of January, began to heal and subside under the gentler breathings of April. The nights and mornings, no longer by their Canadian temperature, <laughs> froze the very blood in our veins. We could now endure the play hour passed in the garden. Sometimes, on a sunny day, it began even to be pleasant and genial, and a greenness grew over those brown beds which, freshening daily, suggested the thought that hope traversed them at night and left each morning brighter traces of her steps. To garden is to believe in a future, after all. That's just me, that's not in here. Flowers peeped out among the leaves, snowdrops, crocuses, purple aruculas, and golden-eyed pansies. On Thursday afternoons, half holidays, we now took walks and found still sweeter flowers opening by the wayside under the hedges. I like that they were already considering Thursday the prekind.
1: Thirsty Thursday. I also love crocuses. We planted some in our garden so that I would have something to look forward to at the end of March.
0: I discovered too that a great pleasure an enjoyment which the horizon only bounded lay all outside the high and spike guarded walls of our garden this pleasure consisted in a prospect of noble summits girding a great hill hollow rich in verdure and shadow and a bright beck full of dark stones and sparkling eddies how different had this scene looked when i viewed it laid out beneath the iron sky of winter stiffened in frost shrouded with snow when mists as chill as death wandered to the impulse of east winds along those purple peaks and rolled down ing ing in quotes and home till they blended with the frozen fog of the beck. let's see here we've got a note in northern english dialect ing means a swampy meadow Holm, low-lying land near water and beck, a brook how folksy ing is a swampy
1: meadow okay a gerund
0: (laughs) swampy meadows that reminds me of where you did your crawdad scientific studies in missouri
1: oh for sure those were definitely swampy meadows
0: because it's definitely out in the sunshine and you see like big tall green grasses right i'm picturing the right Mm -hmm. area
1: and when you walk in it your boots (laughs) sink about two feet and it goes that's an ing
0: that's an ing we have them here too (laughs) That beck itself was a, then a torrent, turbid and curbless. It tore us under the wood and sent a raving sound through the air, often thickened with wild rain or whirling sleep. And for the forest on its banks, that showed only ranks of skeletons. This is so fun to read out loud, because reading it out loud, I really imagine that this was something that maybe Charlotte read out loud to her sisters. Like, perhaps this was how this passage was workshopped. Maybe all of them, but it feels especially prescient here. April advanced to May. A bright, serene May it was. Days of blue sky, placid sunshine, and soft western or southern gales filled up its duration, and now vegetation matured with vigor. Low wood shook loose its tresses. It became all green, all flowery. Its great elm, ash, and oak skeletons were restored to majestic life. Woodland plants sprung up profusely in its recesses. Unnumbered varieties of moss filled its hollows, and it made a strange ground sunshine out of the wealth of its wild primrose plants. I have seen their pale gold gleam in overshadowed spots, like scatterings of the sweet luster. All this I enjoyed often and fully, free, unwatched, and almost alone. For this unwanted liberty and pleasure there was a cause, to which it now became my task to advert.
1: The British are very obsessed with their wildlands.
0: Their gardens.
1: Yeah, how much they love their natural beauty and like how much people spend talking about it for such a small island that like doesn't have a wild in the same way that we do on this side of the Atlantic.
0: They don't really have a wild. They have their gardens, unlike like French gardens, which are very like, how can we do something weird and crazy with this new medium of plants? They're like, how can we recreate a wild? Yeah. But it is all very curated. And controlled, which also feels very English? Totally. Have I not described a pleasant sight for a dwelling when I speak of it as bosomed in hill and wood and rising from the verge of a stream? Assuredly, pleasant enough, but whether healthy or not is another question. There's this beautiful house, and I just thought it was like the most beautiful fairy tale cottage on my block, and it recently went up for sale. And I was so excited. And then I found out that the interior is like condemned and they have to completely tear it down, but it's like covered in ivy that blossoms in the spring and stuff. And anyways, that just made me think of that. The forest dell where Lowood lay was the cradle of fog and fog bred pestilence, which quickening with the quickening spring crept into the orphan asylum, breathed typhus through its crowded schoolroom and dormitory. And ere may arrived transformed the seminary into a hospital. Ooh, dark. I've got a note on that fog-bred pestilence. The theory of disease prevalent in the early to mid-19th century held that susceptible persons could catch disease from noxious odors or atmosphere. The germ theory of disease was not well known until later in the 19th century.
1: What's also a heartbreak about this is, like, Jane finds so much pleasure, consolation, and joy in nature, and that nature has this, like, deadly insidiousness in this passage and really like especially as being a modern reader it's like it's the conditions that the girls are kept in low wood yeah like knowing that and then having her be like it's the fog and i'm like no it's that you don't have enough food to eat and you're kept too close together
0: but this reminds me of an important guideline whenever you're doing like text analysis and it's like you can't bring that and be like but jane's wrong like no jane is right because nothing exists outside the text
1: yeah, Jane's right.
0: Yeah, that she has that understanding.
1: Right. It just makes me sad, you know.
0: But that duality. Yeah. That duality. And that all these girls have to die. Her comfort, her ability to adapt to it, certainly kind of come up here pretty quick. True. Semi-starvation and neglected colds had predisposed most of the pupils to receive infection. Here we go. Charlotte Bront is now writing. We are out of Jane Eyre's voice immediately. You can pick up on it pretty quick.
1: Oh my god.
0: 45 out of the 80 girls lay ill at one time. Classes were broken up, rules relaxed. The few who continued well were allowed almost unlimited license because the medical attendant insisted on the necessity of frequent exercise to keep them in health. And had it been otherwise, no one had leisure to watch or restrain them. Miss Temple's whole attention was absorbed by the patients. She lived in the sick room, never quitting it except to snatch a few hours rest at night. The teachers were fully occupied with packing up and making other necessities necessary preparations for the departure of those girls who were fortunate enough to have friends and relations able and willing to remove them from the seat of contagion many already smitten went home only to die some died at the school and were buried quietly and quickly the nature of the malady forbidding delay While disease had thus become an inhabitant of Lowood, and death its frequent visitor, while there was gloom and fear within its walls, while its rooms and passages steamed with hospital smells, the drug and the pastille, striving vainly to overcome the effluvia of mortality. That bright may shone unclouded over the bold hills and beautiful woodland out of doors. Its garden too glowed with flowers, hollyhocks had sprung up tall as trees, lilies had opened, dahlias and roses were in bloom, borders of the little beds were gay with pink thrift and crimson double daisies, and sweet briars gave out morning and evening the scent of spice and apples. And These fragrant treasures were all useless for most of the inmates of Lowood, except to furnish, now and then, a handful of herbs and blossoms to put in a coffin. Very goth. This is the kind of imagery now that a lot of times when you see film adaptations of Jane Eyre and also Weathering Heights in a lot of ways, you kind of lose like the what we now understand as like goth kid imagery. Like, why is the pale girl with henna dyed black hair in the corner obsessed with this? But then there are these like historical depictions of death that are so interesting.
1: I think also one of the things that's really striking me on this reading, also being in the midst of COVID, is like in the film adaptations, we really gloss over the fact that 45 girls are in a sick room and that the school becomes a hospital and Miss Temple is running herself ragged trying to keep the girls alive that she can and also that some of these girls get sent home just to die. That's really glossed over and just seen in the guise of Helen.
0: Yeah, it does make Helen like a singular martyr, which... Yeah, I think, like, sanitizes, to be a little too on-the-nose, Lowood. Right. And as you pointed out, the depiction of Lowood is going to define a lot of public reception for Jane Eyre for much of its contemporaneous period. And I think maybe, yeah, like, taking the time to read through it again and, and really, like, go through it. Like, I don't feel like I'm just, like... Trying to get to Rochester.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the enjoyable things, but also just this idea of like, it's so beautiful outside. And the only thing that Jane can do with that beauty is like collect blossoms and put them on the coffins of like her schoolmates.
0: But it's also, like, this idea of, like, new life and the end of life being inextricable from one another. And in fact, like, it really flattens this idea of a life. Like, we're all already always. You know what I mean? hmm
1: A little bit of that. It's funny, because, like, what's his name? April is the cruelest month. And in this book, it feels like May is the cruelest month, even as it's the most beautiful.
0: And we're going to also find out that this period at Lowood allows Jane a certain amount of free time. But I, and the rest who continued well, enjoyed fully the beauties of the scene and season. They let us ramble in the wood like gypsies from morning till night. We did what we liked, went where we liked. We lived better, too. Mr. Brocklehurst and his family never came near Lowood now. Household manners were not scrutinized into. The cross housekeeper had gone, driven away by the fear of infection. Her successor, who had been matron at the Lowton dispensary, unused, unused to the ways of her new abode, provided with comparative liberality. Besides, there were fewer to feed, The sick would eat little, our breakfast basins were better filled, and there was no time to prepare a regular dinner, which often happened. She would give us a large piece of cold pie or a thick slice of bread and cheese, and this we carried away with us to the wood, where we each chose the spot we liked best and dined sumptuously. My favorite seat was a smooth and broad stone rising white and dry from the very middle of the beck, and only to be got at by wading through the water, a feat I accomplished barefoot. The stone was just broad enough to accommodate comfortably me and another girl. At that time, my chosen comrade, one Mary Ann Wilson, a shrewd, observant personage whose society I took pleasure in, partly because she was witty and original and partly because she had a manner which set me at my ease. Some years older than I, she knew more of the world and could tell me many things I liked to hear. With her, my curiosity found gratification. To my faults also, she gave ample indulgence, never imposing curb or rein on anything I said. She had a turn for narrative, I for analysis. She liked to inform, I to question. So we got on swimmingly together, deriving much entertainment if not much improvement from our mutual intercourse. Deriving much entertainment if not improvement from our mutual intercourse. I don't know what to think of that but i'm gonna ponder it for a while
1: you know i mean that's very early victorian this idea that you should only associate with people who make your insides better and if not your insides they should make your social standing better
0: and also like betterment is separate from pleasure entirely exactly and that like
1: anything that's entirely pleasurable or entirely entertainment should be indulged in
0: infrequently but i would say even like partially entertaining. Oh my God. Some of those plays are so excruciatingly boring that were so celebrated at the time. Yeah, not only boring, but like fucking preachy. Like, no wonder they were hungry
1: for Oscar Wilde when he came along.
0: All right, get ready to be bummed out, guys. If you weren't already.
1: (laughs) All those dead girls in coffins weren't enough.
0: I like the idea of herbs as a morning flower, though. I think I might adapt that. That's nice. I
1: like it. I also like it in uh, bridal bouquets. I think they're very nice.
0: People put anything in a bridal bouquet, though.
1: Yeah, a lot, they do put lots of stuff in bridal bouquets. Anything. I had a pine cone in mine. Tree trash. <laughs> tree period <laughs> tree droppings. Trash. Oh, my God. I want that tattoo on my bicep, tree trash, and it'll just be a pine cone <laughs> and, like, a raccoon. That's what I want for my next birthday
0: tree trash it would be pretty it could have like one of those like ribbons coiling around the raccoon holding the pine cone
1: it would be super cute it'd be like on its back you know with the pine cone on its belly
0: i was thinking of it like jealously clutching the pine cone maybe on my
1: other arm i'd have that one and then that one also would be like mom my two raccoons
0: (laughs) mom and where meantime was helen burns Why did I not spend these sweet days of liberty with her? Had I forgotten her? Or was I so worthless as to have grown tired of her pure society? Surely the Marianne Wilson I have mentioned was inferior to my first acquaintance. Poor Marianne! She could only tell me amusing stories and reciprocate any racy and pungent gossip I chose to indulge in. While, if I have spoken truth of Helen, she was qualified to give those who enjoyed the privilege of her converse a taste of far higher things true reader, and I knew and I felt this. And though I am a defective being, with many faults and a few redeeming points, yet I never tired of Helen Burns, nor ever ceased to cherish her for a sentiment of attachment as strong, tender, and respectful as any that ever animated my heart. How could it be otherwise when Helen, at all times and under all circumstances, evinced for me a quiet, and a faithful friendship, which ill-humor never soured nor irritation ever troubled. But Helen was ill at present. For some weeks she had been removed from my sight, to I know not what room, upstairs. She was not, I was told, in the hospital portion of the house, with the fever of patients, for her complaint was consumption, not typhus, and by consumption I, in my ignorance, understood something mild, which time and care would be sure to alleviate. I was confirmed in this idea by the fact of her once or twice coming downstairs on very warm sunny afternoons and being taken by Miss Temple into the garden. But on these occasions, I was not allowed to go and speak to her. I only saw her from the schoolroom window, and then not distinctly for she was much wrapped up and sat at a distance under the veranda. One evening, in the beginning of June, I'd stayed out very late with Marianne in the wood. We had, as usual, separated ourselves from the others and had wandered far, so far that we lost our way and had to ask it at a lonely cottage where a man and woman lived who looked after a herd of half-wild swine that fed on the mast in the wood. When we got back, it was after moonrise, A pony, which we knew to be the surgeons, was standing at the garden door. Mary Ann remarked that she supposed one must be very ill, as Mr. Bates had been sent for at that time of the evening. She went into the house. I stayed behind a few minutes to plant in my garden a handful of roots I had dug up in the forest, and which I feared would wither if I left them till morning. This done, I lingered yet a little longer. The flowers smelled so sweet as the dew fell. It was such a pleasant evening, so serene, so warm. The still glowing west promised so fairly another fine day on the morrow. The moon rose with such majesty in the grave east. I was noting these things and enjoying them as a child might when it entered my mind as it had never done before. How sad to be lying now on a sick bed and to be in danger of dying. This world is pleasant. It would be dreary to be called from it and to have to go who knows where. And then, my mind made its first earnest effort to comprehend what had been infused into it concerning heaven and hell, and for the first time it recoiled, baffled, and for the first time, glancing behind on each side and before it, it saw all around an unfathomed gulf. It felt the one point where it stood, the present. All the rest was formless cloud and vacant death, and it shuddered at the thought of tottering and plunging amid that chaos. While pondering this new idea, I heard the front door open. Mr. Bates came out, and with him was a nurse. After she had seen him mount his horse and depart, she was about to close the door, but I ran up to her. How is Helen Burns? Very poorly, was the answer. Is it her Mr. Bates has been to see? Yes. And what does he say about her? He says she'll not be here for long. This phrase, uttered in my hearing yesterday, would have only conveyed the notion that she was about to be removed to Northumberland, to her own home. I should not have suspected it meant she was dying, but I knew instantly now. It opened clear on my comprehension that Helen Burns was numbering her last days in this world, and that she was going to be taken to the region of spirits, if such region there were. I experienced a shock of horror, then a strong thrill of grief, then a desire, a necessity, to see her, and I asked in what room she lay. She is in Miss Temple's room, said the nurse. May I go up and speak to her? Oh, no, child, it is not likely. And now it is time for you to come in. You'll catch a fever if you stop out when the dew is falling. The nurse closed the front door. I went in by the side entrance, which led to the schoolroom. I was just in time. It was nine o'clock, and Miss Miller was calling the pupils to go to bed. It might be two hours later, probably near eleven, when I, not having been able to fall asleep, and deeming, from perfect silence of the dormitory, that my companions were all wrapped in profound repose, rose softly, put on my frock over my nightdress, and, without shoes, crept from the apartment and set off in quest of Miss Temple's room. It was quite at the other end of the house, but I knew my way, and the light of the passage, unclouded summer moon, Entering here and there at passage windows enabled me to find it without difficulty. An odor of camphor and burned vinegar warned me when I came near the fever room, And I passed its door quickly, fearful lest the nurse, who sat up all night, should hear me. I dreaded being discovered and sent back, for I must see Helen. I must embrace her before she died. I must give her one last kiss, exchange with her one last word. Having descended a staircase, traversed a portion of the house below, and succeeded in opening and shutting, without noise, two doors, I reached another flight of steps. There I mounted. And then, just opposite to me, was Miss Temple's room. A light shone through the keyhole, and from under the door, a profound stillness pervaded the vicinity. Coming near, I found the door slightly ajar, probably to admit some fresh air into the close abode of sickness. Indisposed to hesitate and full of impatient impulses, soul and senses quivering with keen throes, I put it back and looked in. My eyes sought Helen and feared to find death. Close by Miss Temple's bed and half covered with its white curtains, there stood a little crib. I saw the outline of a form under the clothes, but the face was hid by the hangings. The nurse I had spoken to in the garden sat in an easy chair, asleep. An unsuffered candle burned dimly on the table. Miss Temple was not to be seen. I knew afterward that she had been called to a delirious patient in the fever room i advanced then paused by the crib side my hand was on the curtain but i preferred speaking before i withdrew it i still recoiled at the dread of seeing a corpse helen i whispered softly are you awake she stirred herself put back the curtain and i saw her face pale wasted but quite composed she looked so little changed that my fear was instantly dissipated "'Can it be you, Jane?' she asked in her own gentle voice. "'Oh, I thought, she's not going to die. "'They are mistaken. "'She could not speak and look so calmly if she were. "'I got onto her crib and kissed her. "'Her forehead was cold and her cheek, both cold and thin, "'and so were her hand and wrist, but she smiled as of old. "'Why are you come, Jane? "'It is past 11 o'clock. "'I heard it strike some minutes since. "'I came to see you, Helen. "'I heard you were very ill, "'and I could not sleep till I had spoken to you.' You came to bid me goodbye then. You're just in time probably. Are you going somewhere, Helen? Are you going home? Yes, to my long home, my last home. Quite unnecessarily, my book has decided to note, my long home means grave. (laughs) I want to show you how starkly- Oh my god. It's literally just an asterisk with the word grave period next to it. You shall find me a
1: grave, man.
0: No, no, Helen. I stopped, distressed. While I tried to devour my tears, a fit of coughing seized Helen. It did not, however, wake the nurse. When it was over, she lay some minutes, exhausted. Then she whispered, Jane, your little feet are bare. Lie down and cover yourself with my quilt. I did so. She put her arm over me, and I nestled close to her. After a long silence, she resumed, still whispering, I'm very happy, Jane, and when you hear that I am dead, you must be sure and not grieve." There is nothing to grieve about. We all must die one day. And the illness which is removing me is not painful. It is gentle and gradual. My mind is at rest. I leave no one to regret me much. I have only a father, and he is lately married and will not miss me. By dying young, I shall escape great sufferings. I had not qualities or talents to make my way very well in the world. I should have been continually at fault. But where are you going to, Helen? Can you see? Do you know? I believe. I have faith. I am going to God. Where is God? What is God? My Maker and yours. I will never destroy what he created. I rely implicitly on his power and confide wholly in his goodness. I count the hours till that eventful one arrives which shall restore me to him, reveal him to me. You are sure then, Helen, that there is such a place as heaven and that our souls can get to it when we die? I am sure there is a future state I believe God is good. I can resign my immortal part to him without any misgiving. God is my father. God is my friend. I love him. I believe he loves me. And shall I see you again, Helen? When I die, you will come to the same region of happiness, be received by the same mighty universal parent. No doubt, dear Jane. Again, I questioned, but this time only in thought. Where is that region? Does it exist? And I clasped my arms closer around Helen. She seemed dearer to me than ever. I felt as if I could not let her go. I lay with my face hidden on her neck. Presently, she said in the sweetest tone, how comfortable I am. The last bit of coughing has tired me a little. I feel as if I could sleep, but don't leave me, Jane. I like to have you near me. I'll stay with you, dear Helen. No one shall take me away. Are you warm, darling? Yes. Good night, Jane. Good night, Helen. She kissed me and I her, and we both soon slumbered. When I awoke, it was day. An unusual movement roused me. I looked up. I was in somebody's arms. The nurse held me. She was carrying me through the passage back to the dormitory. I was not reprimanded for leaving my bed. People had something else to think about. No explanation was afforded then to my many questions. But a day or two afterward, I learned what Miss Temple, on returning to her own room at dawn, had found. Me laid in the little crib, my face against Helen Burns' shoulder, my arms round her neck. I was asleep and Helen was dead. Her grave is in Brocklebridge Churchyard. For 15 years after her death, it was only covered by a grassy mound. But now, a gray marble tablet marks the spot, inscribed with her name and the word Resurgum. Definitely one of the heaviest chapters that we'll have. I'm so affected. I really have a hard time keeping it together. And even while I'm reading it, I'm thinking like, God, this is over the top. This like little girl giving this speech about the afterlife and her faith in God. It's like watching an episode of Dawson's Creek. It's like kids don't talk like this. But it's still nonetheless, like, in spite of my great amount of cynicism and frustration, I'm still so affected by it. And I don't know if it's because the idea of death, and especially death of someone so young, is always going to be that affecting. I
1: think it's that, but also children don't talk like Helen, but children do talk like Jane. And when she says where will i go what is death who is god will i see you there like i think one of the things that remains imminently eternal about death is that we are always children in front of it because we don't know where we're going and we don't know what's on the other side if there's anything on the other side it doesn't matter how cynical you are and you can genuinely believe that the only thing after death is dust and like you know there's a kind of comfort in that I think but it is the question like does it exist will I go there and like to have someone who loves you put their arms around you and say that like it's going to be okay and like are you warm darling and then they just say goodnight to each other it's just I'm always very affected by this scene but like
0: you put it so eloquently is that we are all always children before this concept and that reminded me of like the flattening you know like I often think about like in terms of like death and birth right this idea of creation and destruction but there's also like wrapped around it constantly is like this lack of assuredness right this like maybe it is transitional and I think there are a lot of ways that even death as we experience it as the living is also you know a transitional period and uh, it can be very generative and it can be very creative as well and so like yeah there is you know this idea of this spring releasing this fog that will kill you right and this like flattening even though Helen Burns's death is separate from that but like There is like this flattening. And the thing that I think primed me so much for it was Jane having that moment of her consciousness flipping as she's participating in this act of like hope and futurity, right? Planting these roots in her garden that she pulled from a forest and, you know, having this act of belief in a futurity and suddenly this realization that there's only a soft clouded fog ahead and like an unknowable chasm below, right? And having that realization of that ambiguity, I think saying that we are all always children before death is spot on. And, and I think certainly speaks to the book itself and how it's thinking and processing.
1: Yeah. I also found myself like newly angry at the euphemisms the adults use. And like as you say like that singular moment where Jane understands herself as like only in the present with like the fog behind her and the chasm before her and that there is only now and that like if somebody had said yesterday that Helen is going away, she would have understood her as going home. And like all of the euphemisms that we use to like soften and undo the permanency of death and a Especially to children, I think is like really hard. And I like, you know, I find this incredibly affecting right now because of the pandemic and how many people are dying alone and like what a comfort Helen takes in Jane being there.
0: Yeah, but also her speech is so of its time and place, right? Yeah, totally. Thank goodness I'm dying as a child because it'll like prevent me from experiencing all of these other hardships. Let's be honest, I was no—I
1: didn't have the skills.
0: I wasn't a scholar. I wasn't a lady. <laughs>
1: I'll be—I'll f- be fair to myself.
0: Yeah, I'm sparing the world my futurity. So self-negating as she is, self-negating off the plane. Yeah. There is something that's like strums a key that I don't want to hear when she's talking, and, and she is so self deprecating and like talking about how her father is remarried and he has like a new family now, so he'll move on. The thing that makes me scared about that is like the fact that I'm not able to be dismissive of it makes me feel like how true it is, and perhaps how true it is even in this moment. Like, you have to move on from death, but what does that even mean? Yeah. what does that mean?
1: I think also there's like, I have never noticed it until this reading, and this is literally my fourth time reading this book, and it's, her grave is in Brocklebridge Churchyard. For 15 years after her death, it was only covered by a grassy mound, but now a gray marble tablet marks the spot inscribed with her name and the word resurgam. And so we know that
0: foreshadowing, we know who's gonna pay for the marble tablet.
1: Exactly, I'm like, what an insane thing to say, Like, like her dad didn't even fucking put a marker there and that like it takes a full decade and a half for jane to come up with the funds for a gray marble tablet it's both so gross and is speaking to exactly this idea of like what moving on means and like to be forgotten but also to have this like burning remembrance that even a decade and a half later, someone would come to the spot where your physical remains are and like put a tablet with your name on it.
0: The other thing I would say about that is that like Jane is always remembering her across the entire novel that we're gonna continue to read. Jane is always thinking of her and that's why she returns, but she's only able to materialize her remembrance once she has money. Yes. And I think that's important to remember that I've done quite a few cemetery walks because Chicago has beautiful cemeteries and looking at the mausoleums and the placements and, you know, they all have different like, are you going to be facing a water feature, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And the efficacy of your physical material remembrance is so tied up in your material wealth, In something that matters so little in the afterlife, surely. I think about that too. And that is material wealth. Yeah. Isn't that strange that we're not all afforded whatever sort of (laughs) remembrance or whatever that we want?
1: But we never have been. And like, you know, that's one of the things like in one of the horrifying things that I learned about when I was in my own goth phase is that churches in Europe charged rent for bodies. And like, if you couldn't pay the rent on grandma's bones, they'd disinter grandma and then throw her in a pit in still sacred ground, but she wouldn't get her own marker anymore. And they do it after 125 years, no matter what, because that's five generations. It's like, your grandma doesn't need that spot anymore. Yeah. Like the ruthless efficiency of the capitalization of death, because it's so spiritual and so like wrapped up in culture, but it's also like we can use that to squeeze pennies out of people. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also interesting because, like, I live by a cemetery now and do my own cemetery walks. But one of the weird things too about living in our current moment is that you'll have people who are thinking about this kind of futurity, and like, you'll have a, like a headstone that's got dad filled out, and then it'll have like the name of his wife, and she's not dead yet.
0: And what if she marries someone new in the meantime? Exactly. And then like, where does her body go? I saw a headstone and it was like that. And like, you see the mom, right? And And then next to her was another headstone. And that was her new husband. Oh, wow. And that's how they solved that.
1: (laughs) That's actually a pretty good solve. Because like one of the ones that I saw is like he died in the 50s. And then like, you know, she was born in like 1901. And it's like the idea that she'd still be alive right now seems crazy to me. But I guess it's possible. But it's like she moved away and her remains are somewhere else. And her name is on one half of this tombstone. And so then it's like, where do you bury your bones? Like my dad's parents are buried in St. Louis, but like, I'm not going to be buried there. I have no connection to that city. But it's also weird to me that like, they're just chilling in old St. Lou. And my parents live in Michigan. So like, what are we going to do with their bones? I don't know.
0: Yeah, my great grandmother was from a small town in West Texas, go figure Memphis, Texas. Mm. And that is where she is buried. And her daughter was always like, yeah, we'll be buried in the family plot in that cemetery. And my grandpa was one of the first people. To want to be cremated. And he was like, I don't want to be around the sandbirds in Memphis, Texas. (laughs) I remember that so vividly. What do you do in that city? So because like in the moment, like you want to prepare for your eventual demise, but there's also no way to prepare for what your life is going to be like. And I love the idea that this one woman is like eternally in the middle seat of a spoon train, right? But I also love the idea of this other woman, like going somewhere else and creating such a new life that like the only thing to remember her by in Chicago is her unfinished Grave, gravestone, which is also kind of generative. don't know
1: very generative
0: it's hard to say like is there a wrong way to remember someone or to prepare to remember someone is there a wrong way to prepare to remember someone but
1: like how do you prepare to remember someone versus like how do you prepare your own memory and i think like that is the thing that like gets real complicated with some of these gravestones but also it's like harold washington the first black mayor of chicago is buried in the cemetery and his epitaph is bonkers i think i've told you this it's like let them say i tried to be fair.
0: Yeah. Let them say I tried to be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's a little passive-aggressive, but it's also so sad. You could put the emphasis wherever you wanted. Exactly. Let
1: them say I tried to be fair. Let them say it. They're gonna say what they're gonna Gross say. It's like a Paul Lynn like, <laughs> wow,
0: let them say it, you know.
1: Exactly. I mean, he died very suddenly. That's probably, like, a line from Ugh. a speech or something. I don't know.
0: There's another thing whenever you think about unexpected death and I'm thinking about a specific one in my life, where the remembrance process becomes this muddled id of everyone who is surrounding that person. Because funerals are for the living, right? Yes. And those tombstones probably are for the living, because we don't really know what happens when we die or we can't. And I think Harold Washington's epitaph is a great example of that. Like, I love it, because it's so rare that you see a lot of the time we have time to prepare and think about an epitaph, right? We workshop it, especially for a powerful politician. And I love that that almost feels so immediate. It feels like the first thing people thought of. And then everyone was like in that same headspace, right? Of the like truism of this person. And so they were like, yep, put it on there. You know, I love that idea too. I might make it a request that as you know, Isabel, I would like a full-on mausoleum with a marble bench in front of it so that goth kids don't have to lose their virginity on the ground. They are indoor people by nature. It's true. And then I would also like to request quest first draft only draft on my epitaph i think that as well it's like if i can't have a franco zeffirelli
1: mausoleum with shelves and i also want a bench, but i also want like a forever flame lantern that is obviously kept yeah lit
0: i want a portrait of me mm-hmm. one of those like forever portraits that they put in but i do want it to be 1970s sepia toned mm-hmm. it probably won't exist before i die so it will have to be digitally rendered
1: that's fine we can definitely make that happen.
0: I want that in there. And I obviously want to face a water feature. Obviously. But not so
1: close as like erosion will eventually just like topple your mausoleum into Yes. Place. Which is also happening at the cemetery by my house, which is very weird. Oh my gosh. You're just watching these like mausoleums slide into the water feature, which is terrifying. No, first draft only draft on epitaphs.
0: First draft only draft on epitaphs. I was going to say something else, but I feel like we've reflected so much on death and remembrance. Oh, I would say David Bowie is a good example of like preparing other people for your own death and how you can make your death and then your afterlife because i would say we all have an afterlife in the way people remember us right having some like creative control over your afterlife seems pretty impressive
1: i agree i feel like that about leonard cohen too his last song let's get a little darker
0: oh glenn campbell his last album that was all about Ugh. So good. We give David Bowie a lot of credit, but Glenn Campbell had a whole documentary. Although he had a much smaller audience, he had a similar project. All right. Well, I think we've talked long enough about this, although we could talk forever about forever, couldn't we? Podcast within a podcast. Turns
1: out that we are goth girls in hiding. <laughs> in hiding. <laughs> We're plainclothes goth
0: girls. Plain clothes goth girls. That's actually very true. All right. With that, loosen your jeans, but never your airs. Mua